This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 29 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, as always coming to you from Brooklyn, New York, and there's so much going on right now at World Beyond War. The most exciting thing we're going to talk about today is the first War Abolisher Awards, which we presented to three very deserving recipients on October 6th, 2021, just a couple of days ago from this recording. I'm really looking forward to sharing some moments from our award presentation in which these three heroes of the anti-war movement spoke. That's most of what this episode is about. But we've also got lots of other stuff going on. World Beyond War maintains chapters of anti-war activists working locally in their own communities around the world. And I think it's pretty noteworthy that we just launched our India and Afghanistan chapter. I hope in the future we can devote an entire episode to our allies over there. And one more thing before we jump into our War Abolishers 2021 awards presentation. World Beyond War is a grassroots, small donor-funded organization founded in January 2014. Seven and a half years later, I'm really proud to announce that World Beyond War has finally been approved in the USA for our own independent charitable 501c3 status. I'm not even going to try to explain what this means for our organization, and instead, I'm happy to bring on my colleague at World Beyond War, our awesome Director of Development, Alex McAdams. Alex has appeared on this podcast before when she helped co-host episode 12 featuring our allies in Canada, where Alex lives. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming back to the World Beyond War podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the significance of World Beyond War becoming a 501c3? So in terms of the relevance in the United States only where where it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could mean really good things for us, I think, as a small grassroots organization that is heavily reliant on individual donations and individual donors for long ser- long-term sustainability. Um, it really makes a difference in terms of for, for their own benefit so that they can have tax exempt donations and get that tax credit. But for the organization, it's a big deal. While it felt a little risky, we have had a long-term fiscal sponsor um, who's been really incredible and helpful and also has dealt with a lot of the um, operational aspects of, mm-hmm. of having a charitable status like taxes and um, all of those things, managing donor receipts and things like that. So it definitely was a big move for us, but one that is is very exciting. I think thinking about having the financial autonomy and, you know, taking the leap to be on our own and to manage operationally and also to give our donors the opportunity to have a direct tax exempt um, donations. It was a pretty significant decision for us and one that we're really excited about. Um, it's a learning curve and we have some incredible people assisting us with Um, thinking about and figuring out all of our new responsibilities as we go forward. But another big advantage to it that we're hoping to really leverage is the ability, because we are a global organization, we are thinking we're currently in the process of getting charitable status in Canada as well, which um, we are close to finishing and being accepted and approved for. Um, which will be great. And then we'll continue on with all other countries so that we have that status um, in all countries to support all donors. 
um, but thinking in terms of being a global organization, which is a key key element to our work and abolishing war and all wars internationally everywhere. While it is just a U.S. charitable status, it does give us the opportunity to um, access and connect to other networks that are more global, such as you know there's there's all these coalitions and opportunities that are um, you can plug into through the the UN. So that will be something that we'll be doing as well so that we can connect with other policymakers globally and um, advocates and activists on the ground that might have some connection to um, committees or uh, or coalitions that are affiliated with the United Nations. And through that, there are some funding opportunities. Also, speaking of funding opportunities, institutional funders, while we are really, really rely on individual donations and see that as part of our long-term sustainability, um, you know, institutional funding can come in and out and, and be temporary, whereas donors um, are a huge part of also not only supporting the organization, but our, our direct involvement in the movement to abolish war. So we see those as being very, a key component to the organization that goes beyond even financial um, sustainability. But because we have, do have our own status, it will open us up to, to having more opportunities for um, applying for different grants and institutional funders, some of whom do not accept fiscal sponsorship. So we're hoping that this opens up our network and our world a little bit, both in terms of the, the advocacy and movement to, to end war, but also in terms of making sure that we are uh, funded sustainably for the long term. Yep, which is very important. Um, I also want to mention, as somebody who's been with the organization for a few years, as you have too, Alex, it, it feels good to to know we're sort of rising to the next level of sort of officialness or whatever we call it. I do want to emphasize, and I'm sure you'll agree with me here, that we will remain a grassroots, small donor funded organization. Honestly, I wouldn't want to work for any other kind of organization. I think some part of what gives us our integrity is that we are funded by human beings. Um, so, th so being a 501c3 doesn't change anything about our nature in terms of no, yeah. no. And that's a good point to even clarify. I'm, that doesn't, in speaking even in terms of the UN, it, it's not a goal of ours to necessarily um, secure or be funded by any sort of governmental um, organization or agency. And we are very intentional about where we take money and from whom. And um, the, the best place to get that from is individual donors from people who care about the work we're doing and who are just as committed to ending and abolishing war. Um, so we see those are directly connected for us. And it's not this is not using an opportunity to, to grow in a different way or, or move away from ideas and ideals built in grassroots movements. So Alex, what, what is it like being director of development for an anti-war organization? And what do you actually do? <laughs> uh, it's very exciting and complicated, I would say. Um, <laughs> obviously, an anti-war organization, it's, that's a, it's a very big and often... Um, it encompasses a lot of different elements. Um, I think, you know, thinking globally, what it what it means in terms of building the movement, um, the specific work we do in our activist campaigns and our educational programs. Um, there's very specific things that you can leverage for funding in terms of the development side of things, which I do in, in, in grant writing. That's a, a primary um 
primary thing that I do. The primary thing, right. I think. Grant I'm writing. To, to, no, that, the term grant writing has always been confused me. What it means is grant a proposal or writing? Right. You're writing writing, a proposal writing grant proposals, um, right. submitting okay. proposals for funding that can be either project specific. As you know, we have a big project right now called the Peace Education and Action for Impact Project. So we have submitted uh, proposals for grants to specifically support that project, but we also look to general funding, um, which sometimes has a little bit of a longer life in terms of options for multi-year funding to support the ongoing work of the organization. So I write proposals for both of those things and work with our, our other colleagues and team members to, um, you know, think about and review and pull data and look at the impact and the, the overall impact that the, that the programs or the work will have. Um, but yeah, so outside of grant writing, I also interact a lot with individual donors. So mm-hmm. I work with our major donors, I send information, updated information about different programs, keep everyone um, you know, briefed on what's happening um, with the current, even financials, where we we really care about being transparent with people because we are primarily funded by individual donors. So um, I I brief people on all of that information. Um, do different email campaigns to support some of our activist initiatives and um, projects like divestment work or. Um, you know, no bases, working with some indigenous um, land protectors in different countries to help assert their rights uh, when they're being faced with military bases being built in their communities and destroying their communities in a variety of ways. Um, so we'll do fundraising campaigns around there, around those. It's always a funny line because people have feelings about fundraising, but in the end, um, it is what supports these really important uh, projects and work being done. So I help support the team by doing that. Yep. And yeah, we, we couldn't be doing what we're doing without you. That's for sure. Um, it's so important to play this role. Um, and you also mentioned military bases that um, that invade people's communities that interestingly is about to come into play with one of the awards that we're about to give in the next section of this podcast. So we're going to move on to that. I just want to ask you one more question. What do you think makes fundraising to end all war unique among all the different things that activist organizations might be appealing to people to raise funds for. I mean, as a, you know, there, there's climate change, there's economic justice, um, anti-war. What is, what is it like trying to raise funds in this space? Yeah, that, this could probably be a very long answer. <laughs> we could probably do an hour on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quickly. Cause there's different angles to go with. I think funding just quickly to make one comment about, um, how the actual fundraising is different. I think your question has sort of two different parts. <laughs> so I'll go the other direction in a minute, but I think the actual fundraising is very unique because, uh, we, for example, we can't really appeal to cor- corporations. So a lot of um, even activist advocate groups will appeal to corporations for funding. Um, they give a ton of money, but that doesn't really work with us as most larger corporations are tied up in, um, you know, weapons trade and militarism of some form. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we don't do that. So we have to look alternatively to, to other resources for funding to make up for that, um, which can be difficult and unique in terms of the fundraising world. Um, but uh, to the other point, um, you know, I think there's so many important things happening and it's really difficult to, to make a case for, sometimes for supporting an anti-war movement because mm-hmm. it does feel very large and to some people pretty nebulous and not mm-hmm. very tangible. And especially during the time of the pandemic, when there's so many specific needs that are very tangible, like issues around food insecurity or housing that have become a, a very, even more of an elevated crisis in the U.S. specifically and also globally. But I think it's important to remember, you know, the long-term versus the Band-Aid immediate reactive. So sort of the proactive approach of anti-war and thinking about war as in our work is we consider it to be very intersectional that deals with all of the issues you named, climate change, racial justice, economic justice. I mean, war has an impact and affects all of these things. Mm-hmm. And in... Um, it, it is difficult for some people to wrap their brains around, but I think, right. and, and that's completely fair, but it does, our approach is very much that war is the cause of all of these things. So abolishing war would therefore alleviate the need to respond to specific needs like those. Yeah. Well said, Alex. And I'm so glad to have you here to, you know, just give a little explainer of, of what's changing at World Beyond War and most importantly, what isn't changing our mission and, you know, That's our right. conviction and That's our right. action. So yeah. with so that, me. yeah, thank you, Alex, for being here again. I'm, I'm sure this won't be the last time. And on to the War Abolisher Awards. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> All right. You just heard some beautiful flute music by Ron Korb, a peace-loving and Grammy-nominated composer of world music, who was kind enough to provide a musical opening for our award ceremony, as well as a musical closing, which you'll hear at the end of this episode. Ron was introduced by World Beyond War's David Swanson to kick off our first award ceremony, which took place online and all over the world on October 6th, 2021. We will be presenting three awards and hearing from all the award recipients along with other esteemed peace activists. We begin with our friend and board member, Anne Wright, 
who will introduce the first recipient, Yoshiaka Tatsuya, of the wonderful organization Peace Boat, which you'll hear all about. I was impressed to learn that this Japanese organization has been doing its thing since 1983. The visionary founder Yoshioka Tatsuya is here to tell us the whole story. To introduce Yoshioka, here's Anne Wright. Welcome to everyone from all around the world. It's wonderful to see everyone. And I'm so honored to be the person to give the World Beyond War Lifetime Organizational War Abolisher Award to a wonderful, wonderful organization, the Peace Boat. Now, how about that? A boat that floats around the world, taking a thousand people to 20 countries every three months. I mean, if you haven't been on it, you've got to sign up for it because it is really, really incredible. It has people that come on board as lecturers, and that's how I, I first uh, um, got to know the Peace Boat because they were kind enough to invite me to speak about issues of U.S. militarism in Asia and the Pacific. So when you come on board the boat, you have people that are speaking about social justice issues, peace issues, human rights issues, to prepare you to go into the some 20 ports that you'll be going on uh, on each one of these voyages. And this has been going on for a long time, like 35 years, the peace boat has been moving around the world, bringing messages of peace. And the, the first message is when that big, that big ship that has a thousand people on it comes into port, a massive, massive ship that has peace boat written on it. Now, how about that for, uh, advertising piece. We're going to be able to see that boat in just a few moments, and then we will have the wonderful founder and, and director of the Peace Boat, Yoshioka Tatsuyu, pardon me, Tatsuya, who, who will be uh, uh, receiving the, the award, the Lifetime Organizational War Abolisher Award. Thank you. Thank you so much. The, and thank you to introduce us. But anyway, first of all, that uh, I really, really would like to say thank you so much for the World Beyond the War and the organizers. It is a really, really big honor there for us. And uh, because and this is uh, the first time that this award, right? So it is. Uh, it means that this is a historical moment. We received that, and already we. They receive this uh, uh, trophy in Tokyo. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And also, I would like to say, many, many friends all over the world and partners now they they sending us that uh, big the encouragement and also the congratulation message. I, I really would like to say thank you so much. The as a, on behalf of the Peace Board, the it is a huge the support and the power the, to continue to this uh, Peace World project and uh, our global voyage. I think that is a quite a symbolic moment that we receive this award. That is my feeling that because the few weeks ago that uh, the so-called end of the Afghan war and but what's happened there is a query the indicate us or prove us that war cannot create a peace 
I think this is a, now we are sharing very symbolic moment to really, we have to feel this reality, why cannot create a peace, and also the time to really share with the people all over the world this truth. I think this is already very clear evidence of the we cannot make a peace by war, by military power, and also that uh, hatred. We really, how to create now the peace is a very important moment. We have to start to work together toward the abolition war. I have started peace boat with my friends in 1983, long, long time ago, 38 years ago. I, I cannot imagine about that, that peace boat can continue such a long time. And however, the, our program and our activity is continuing until now. The reason why is maybe that's a, we success to create a lot of the friends and network to all over the world to really the, make efforts to make a peace. Because I learned the Japanese history, we have also terrible experience as a Japanese in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and also conventional bombing in Japan. But on the other hand, we really commit terrible aggressor and invasion in other Asian countries. So it is a, our experience itself is a very symbolic tragedy of the war. And also my father's mother's voice and my grandfather's grandmother's voice is telling us war is terrible. And that is a destroy our society and also destroy our kids and also grandchildren's future. So, and the peace world, the method or let's say tool is uh, I really recognize through this uh, global voyage that it is very important that to understand that and to learn what's going on in the world, especially in a conflict zone or refugee camp, or the all over the world, that uh, the reality of the world is that we really have to feel and experience. Otherwise, always that the world is abstract and always peace is abstract. No, 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 no. There's a people is a suffering, people is a killing, very bloody. And that is a truth of the world. There is a no justice. And that's anybody can visit that uh, the conflict zone and the meet with the victims or victims' families. Everybody can understand that. This is not a solution. And but still, the many governments or politicians is a believing about the war is a solution. Military is necessary. And what, what's going on in the world? On the other hand, climate crisis is uh, how many people killing? And COVID is uh, killing how many people? And why we, we have to spend the, the huge, huge money and the resource for the war? 
not to the pandemic, not to the, the climate crisis action. I think now peace movement is a facing the very important moment, I think. That is that we have to really unite with the people working for the action of the climate crisis and also for the pandemic and also the fight against the poverty. I think now that there is no the distinction or the border between peace movement or environmental movement or the disaster management and no, I think that is all this, the, the movement or activities should be together. And we have to achieve that a real peace and also sustainable world together. I think pandemic coronavirus is a told us we need a people, we have to connect. And a peaceful experience is that that connectivity create a friendship and a mutual understanding and stop the hatred and create a peace. So I think now is a very good moment for us and for all of you that really start to think about that. What we can do together? For example, of course, and we are continue to peace education and also peace action and abolition nuclear weapon with ICANN and we are doing that. But on the other hand, that we are planning to build echo ship. This is a, we are using the ship. So a, why not? We try to make a full nuclear, uh, sorry, <laughs> renewable, <laughs> renewable, the, <laughs> the energy ship. That is a, the, one of the concrete solution. But in that case, we have to work with other the, the field of the people, right? We have to work with a renewable energy expert. And also we have to work with environmentalists and uh, also that is uh, the yeah the expert in all over the world i think and also that we have to work with the uh, people the expert of the finance right so i think that is a now is a we have to create an innovative the peace movement together beyond the field or beyond the border i mean not national border i mean that beyond the uh, expertise and work together so i think the i remember very well that the 1999 maybe the quite a lot of people remember about that the hague appeal for peace and at that time they had a, yeah the many people remember i think and a very important message the I learned that is a time to abolition war. Unfortunately, the, we couldn't achieve yet after 20 years. And but I really would like to say again, the time to abolish war, time to abolish the nuclear weapon, time to abolish a war, time to abolish a military. I think now the time is to seriously think about that. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we cannot see each other directly. And, but that's why now 
very important for us more and more that we should promote and connect to each other and create that uh, the next step. And I think now that many people is start to recognize that they, we cannot work by ourselves. And uh, that is uh, what we learned the, in these days, especially in these two years, the coronavirus situation. So I would like to share with you one of the quite uh, uh, the impressed uh, expression. The, she's my friend that Krishna uh, Figueles, and uh, she's the uh, icon of the uh, COP25, uh, COP, the Paris Agreement. And uh, her, the favorite word is uh, stubborn optimism. I like that word. We have to be the with this word, stubborn optimism and abolish nuclear weapon and abolish war and abolish military for the real sustainable planet, for our planet. Thank you very much. We are very, very happy. Thank you. The second of our three awards is the David Hartzell Lifetime Award for a single individual who has had a great impact. You may remember that David Hartzell himself was a guest on the very first episode of the World Beyond War podcast, and he certainly remains impactful himself as a global activist. So it's pretty special to attend an award ceremony with an award given in his honor. The recipient of our second award today is Mel Duncan, who has pioneered the use of unarmed civilian defense to do something war can never do, protect vulnerable human beings. Nonviolent defense is a crucial principle of the peace movement, and certainly of the Gandhian movement and so many others. And Mel Duncan helped to bring this principle to life with the organization Nonviolent Peace Force. So we'll start with some introductory remarks by World Beyond War's John Rohr, who has also appeared on this podcast before in last year's This Is America episode. Then we'll hear from Rosemary Kabaki, who has worked with Mel Duncan and Nonviolent Peace Force in Myanmar. And then we'll hear from Mel himself. Okay, here's John Rohr. Thank you, uh, Yoshoka. Uh, I'm so energized after seeing all that Peace Boat has done. I'd heard about it many times, but I've never felt the energy that I'm feeling from all you from Peace Boat here today. And it, it's just terrific. You know, I, I don't think people support war so much because they like killing and destroying things, but because they don't see an alternative. And we've all been educated to believe that no matter how much we want peace, that if there are really bad guys out there trying to hurt us, warriors are the only one that can save us. And that's what makes this next award so special for me. Since Mohandas Gandhi and others began imagining something like an army of nonviolent soldiers to stop riots in India in the 1920s, there have been visionaries who have resurrected that idea and put together various units of volunteers for the purpose of protecting people from violence without using violence in return. These groups have numbered in the many dozens, and I have worked with several of them over the years and been very impressed at how effective they can be at preventing harm. But unfortunately, all have remained relatively small and out of the mainstream. But in 2002, Mel Duncan and David Hartso decided to do something about that 
by founding the Nonviolent Peace Force, the first attempt to create a modern organization of professional unarmed peacekeepers. And that has evolved into one of the largest groups practicing what is now referred to as Armed Civilian Protection, or UCP. The war system is altogether dependent on people believing that organized violence is essential for protecting them and human rights. With his birthing, nurturing, and advocacy for the Nonviolent Peace Force, and further developing the concept of UCP, Mel has dedicated his life to proving that violence is not always necessary for the protection of civilians. We have alternatives to militarism that are effective. He has worked tirelessly at so many levels to see his idea come to fruition. Mel was involved in every aspect of the creation of NP. He has visited every site multiple times to assure that the international and local personnel were being well cared for. I've seen him return from those trips exhausted by the travel and then met women in South Sudan empowered and grateful because he made the effort. He has painstakingly planned multiple conferences to assure that stakeholders make good note of practices that work and what does not. The fact that UCP is now recognized by the United Nations as an essential part of peacekeeping is no small part due to Mel's almost seven years of work, often away from his family, directly advocating at the United Nations in New York. It is with great pleasure that I personally, and on behalf of the 75,000 person World Beyond War community, present this David Hartsoe Individual Lifetime War Abolisher Award of 2021 to Mel Duncan. Before we hear from Mel, here's some moving words from Mel's friend and associate, Rosemary Kobaki, who is calling in from the border between Myanmar and Thailand. So the sound is a little broken at first, but we can hear her fine after the first few moments. And Rosemary will then introduce Mel. I met Nonviolent Peace Force, if I may call it that, before I got to meet Mel Duncan. Because I was one of those people that were looking for how civilians can make an impact in reduction of war, in reduction of armed conflict in our, in, in our own communities. And in that process, I found Nonviolent Peace Force. And it was with great pleasure that many years later, I got to meet one of the founding people of Nonviolent Peace Force. And one of the things that I learned, even within the first three months of joining Nonviolent Peace Force, is that the objectives that have been set by the organization, reducing violence, bringing in structures, helping the structures that reduce violence in communities, is about people. And when I met Mara Duncan, I then understood why that became one of the foundations of why nonviolent peace force is about people, because Mel Duncan is about people. He's got amazing skills to make relationships individually, collectively at all spheres of life. And it was such a pleasure to see that reflected in the organization that I was working with. One of the things that I learned in my time with Mel Duncan is to recognize the impact that various people have made in nonviolent peace force. And in recognizing that contribution, I saw it in Mel Duncan last year. Uh, Mel called me uh, and said, could you come to the United States? Uh, we having a situation where 
I think an armed civilian protection could make an impact. And this is after the death of George Floyd. And I got an opportunity to spend time with Mel Duncan during that period of time. And it increased my love and understanding of the role that our colleagues play in nonviolent peace force who are nationals of the countries that we work in. As John said, nonviolent peace force works in Iraq and it works in Myanmar, works in South Sudan. And we respect that and work closely together. It was a learning experience for me to actually work with Mel Duncan and see as a national of the United States, what it took for him to be able to, to put in unarmed civilian protection at the forefront of all the work that he was doing. And this is something I have respected. Mel Duncan has worked in all spheres of within nonviolent peace force. He's walked the walk and talked the talk. He has come to the fields that we are working in and spent time with us, even as he then goes off to the United Nations and makes presentation and everywhere in between. I found this year, Mel Duncan reached out to me in a very special way. February of this year in Myanmar, the military government had a coup and overturned the results that were uh, of the elections of, the, of, of November last year. And even as the team was trying to collect that information, I wasn't really surprised. Mel Duncan was one of the people who reached out to me. Mel Duncan reads a lot. Oh, if you know him, you know that. He's connected in very special ways. He's so empathetic and engaged and involved in the work that people do. And he asked, how, was, how is the team? How are our partners? Even before everybody knew what was going on. And that, that carries the work that we do makes it easy because then we are not alone. We do this work, we do it all as a team. And Mel Duncan is central to that team that we have put together. And I say it especially, I remember discussing with Mel Duncan the principles of the organizations of nonviolence and nonpartisanship um, and primacy of actors, which we have been practicing in Myanmar for a long time. And everything just became so confused with our partners, with the team. How do we, how do we continue to be nonpartisan? How do we continue to be nonviolent? How do we keep on? talking about primacy of actors. Who are these actors? These are the questions that we're discussing as a team. Mel Duncan in his amazing, quiet way brought to us Nobel Peace Prize winners who had walked the walk to come and talk with us. We are a very small team. And sometimes people wondered, are we really making a big impact until we talked to these Nobel Prize winners? who talked to us as friends because we are connected with Mel Duncan. And all those discussions have enabled us, even as the coup moves on, even as Myanmar's conflict moves closer and closer to more violence as the response to the conflict. These principles have held us together because we had that initial conversation. I want 
I feel with Mel Duncan <laughs> um, that I always so much respect those ones who say that they have climbed on the shoulders of giants so that they can go high. With Mel Duncan, I have instead reflected and learned something else that a regular person, a normal person like you and I, it is actually Mel Duncan, can grow and become one of those giants. And using that position of giants, open up doors and opportunities for others to grow and climb on his shoulders so that others can also reach the sky. It is my privilege to have known Mel Duncan for a long time professionally. I think one of the best things I can say is that I feel he's my friend. With all these amazing things going on, I will always take that for me. And I would like to ask Mel Duncan <laughs> um, to congratulate him uh, for this award. You definitely have the Rosemary Kabaki Award. It is not an international award, but you have it in my heart. And it is with great pleasure that I am a part of this award that you're receiving from the David Hasbro. Mel Duncan. Thank you, Rosemary. And I point out that Rosemary is speaking to us from the border uh, between Thailand and Myanmar. Thank you for your courageous leadership. I also want to say thank you to Ron uh, for starting us out today with such grace and beauty. Uh, we always have to remember that. Uh, thanks to War Beyond World, our War Be our World Beyond War for this award. And I'm honored to share this recognition with my friends, Yoshioka and Mary Joyce and our other allies at Peace Boat, as well as with the Save Sinyavina, sorry if I mispronounced that, and your powerful organizing. I'm gratified to receive an award named for my dear brother, David Hartzell. Our fateful connection 22 years ago at the Hague Appeal for Peace radically changed my life as well as that of many others. Yet I'm somewhat reticent to accept any individual award. While I acknowledge my contributions, I am intimately aware that my work would be insignificant if it were not part of a create, creative, courageous, and expanding community. I accept this award on behalf of the unarmed civilian protectors who are providing protective accompaniment to women as they venture into the bush to collect firewood. I accept this award on behalf of the women's protection teams in South Sudan who organize across tribal lines to confront military commanders and demand that the soldiers stop sexual and gender-based violence. And I accept this award on behalf of the hundreds of civilians in Mindanao who monitored and enforced a ceasefire engagement or agreement that led to a comprehensive peace agreement. And I accept this award on behalf of the mothers in Sri Lanka who went to the camps in the jungle to retrieve their children who had been abducted to be child soldiers. And I accept this award on behalf of our civilian protectors who today at this very moment 
shelter in a safe house in Myanmar. I accept this award on behalf of the young men in North Minneapolis in the United States who left the influence of gangs to provide nonviolent protection at the local primary school. I accept this on behalf of the thousands now of unarmed civilian protectors who have worked sometimes in very sparse and rough situations. And I also accept this on behalf of the men and women who presently educate at the UN, at ASEAN and at other governmental agencies that one doesn't need guns to protect civilians. In fact, those guns make people less safe. And I accept this on behalf of thousands of our co-creators of Nonviolent Peace Force who answer emails, who keep up the database, who organize events, who donate money, who provide training, who raise money, who pay bills, who buy insurance, who keep the books, and all those other tasks that often go unsighted, but that allow us to keep working. And finally, I accept this award on behalf of our ancestors who have given us so much and are pulling for us right now. Unarmed civilian protection is growing and it works in some of the most violent places on our planet. There are now over 60 non-governmental organizations that are doing this work in 25 different areas and that number grows. The most important thing that we bring, despite all the strategy and the methodology, the most important thing that we bring is our presence, our presence. I was deeply disturbed two weeks ago when Secretary General Guterres grimly warned the UN Gen General Assembly that, quote, we are on the edge of an abyss and moving in the wrong direction. Let us not avert our gaze from that abyss. That edge is narrow, but if we look closely, it is verdant. And if we continue to fix our gaze and look into that abyss, we see cracks, we see glimmers. And through those glimmers, we see the reflection of people like those honored today and millions, literally millions more of us who with no particular title or prestige are co-creating loving and sustainable communities in harmony with all beings on our planet. We have everything that we need right here and right now. Thank you. Okay, the final War Abolisher Award goes to Save Senyayevna, a new peace movement in Montenegro that has powerfully emerged in response to a shocking crisis. After the small Balkan nation of Montenegro joined NATO, the residents of an idyllic pasture grounds belonging to the people who have lived there forever were suddenly threatened with the construction of a gigantic new NATO-funded military base which would obliterate their land and their way of life. Save Senyayevna is a new peace movement that sprung up in response to this, and I think you'll find their story amazing, inspiring, and also troubling, 
because despite some victories, they still face the threat that their lands will be stolen for a new NATO military base. To talk about this, we're going to hear from World Beyond War's own expert on the movement to close military bases around the world, Leah Bolger. Leah will say a few words and then introduce Pablo Dominguez, who will then introduce, in order, Petar Glamazic, then Milan Sakoyevic, then Presidia Dravanovic. When World Beyond War looked at ways to dismantle the institution of war, we identified military bases as a significant factor in not only facilitating war, but making war more likely. For decades, indigenous peoples around the world have been harmed by military forces. Their land has been stolen and their property destroyed. They have had to abandon their homes and had their livelihoods taken from them and their local environments have been devastated by toxic chemicals and other destruction. World Beyond War is so pleased to bestow our first annual War Abolisher of the Year Award to the Civic Initiative Save Sinyavina Association, who have literally put their bodies on the line to prevent a military base from being created on their land. I'm not going to take any more time to tell you about their work. Instead, it's my pleasure to now introduce Pablo Dominguez, who will tell you more about the courageous efforts of these incredible people. Dr. Pablo Dominguez is an environmental anthropology senior researcher at the Geode Laboratory, a mixed unit of research of the French National Council for Scientific Research and the University of Toulouse. He has provided scientific and politological advice and support to the association from the early beginning of the struggle. Thank you, Pablo. Uh, thank you, I hope you hear me well. Welcome to this talk um, that we're gonna give about the story of Sinyavina. It's mainly the, the protagonist of it from the ground that we're gonna talk. I'm just gonna introduce this happening in Montenegro, a little country of southeastern Europe that turned out uh, with the 2021 War Abolisher Award by World Beyond War to who we could not be more grateful and be here joining all of you hearing these amazing stories from which we're learning already so much and we're definitely gonna go on learning to tell in our case, our work of Safe Sinyavian Association to defend their communal pasture lands from military land grabbing and uh, the project that, that ourselves have uh, into, into to the future to consolidate the no-go zone to, to the military. Because this is, this is the, the true story of a group of local people, very you know, poor, marginalized societies in the mountains of Montenegro, who nevertheless strongly resisted the establishment of a NATO military ground that promised to destroy the livelihood of over 250 farming families that had sustained their, their lives for centuries in a true a uh, biocultural jewel in a UNESCO protected area. It, is a, it was a huge tragedy at social and ecological level that these heroes reached to stop for now, but that nowadays still in danger as the military plan is at least officially only in standby. Thanks to these heroes, let me just introduce you to Petar Glomasic, a Save Sinyavinya key member and one of its main spokesmen, uh, as well as a Sinyavinya documentary film director will speak first to give an overview of the context in which the struggle situates itself, and then will be followed by Milan Sekulovic, 
journalist and recently elected president of the Sejsinjavinja Association, will provide the details of the maneuvers and techniques, including communicative ones used uh, during the, the, the resist camp that stopped the military intervention last year. And finally, Persida Jovanovic, daughter of Sinjavinja, like Milan, who's finalizing her master's in political science and helps her family farm in the pastures every year and is a perfect representative of a Sinjavinja in defense of his family's land. Please, Peter, go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's really, I'm really honored to be given the opportunity to be here today with all of these exceptional and deserving people. And of course, to be the part of the team to receive this very significant and precious award, precious award and to share with you an important story from, from my country, from Montenegro. For those who do not know, Montenegro is the smallest republic of former Yugoslavia, situated in Western Balkans, with access to the Adriatic Sea. This very tiny country, just 620,000 people, and but that country has an amazing history and tradition. And during the last two decades, it has become a very popular tourist destination. Sinjavina Mountain in the northern part of the country is the stage of our story. It is the second largest pasture land in Europe at around 2000 meters of altitude. And for millennia, it has been used by shepherds between June and October every year. They are coming from their villages situated in the valleys around this highland plateau. Some of them even come from remote areas and walk for several days with their flocks and herds to reach the meadows. Sinjavina really represents an extremely rare ecosystem with thousands of plant species, with, with full, which, which is full of wildlife. It is part of UNESCO Tara River Basin Biosphere Reserve, surrounded by several national parks and even two UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And itself, it's planned with EU as a Natura 2000 protection area. The melting snow from this mountain actually is the water reservoir for the region. And it is the main agricultural resource of our country in, ter in terms of herding and, and cattle breeding. Our country has been suffering from the post-Yugoslav trauma. And it is a never-ending transition since the end of Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Since breakdown of Yugoslavia, we managed to build only a fictitious democracy, despite the fact that the party in power for three decades is named Democratic Party of Socialists. But in reality, power is in hands of one man, eternal president for more than 30 years, Milo Djukanovic, and people around him. And we are witnessing decades in which public interests are completely neglected under the pretext of privatization processes. In reality, we have wild privatization and plunder of public goods. That is the real face of that famous term transition in the Western Balkans. Our country is the first country to proclaim an ecological country through its constitution. However, we are witnessing numerous examples of violence, of violence against nature, pollution, 
uncontrolled construction and destruction of the sea coast, uncontrolled logging of centuries old forests, and destruction of dozens of idle rivers with drinking water due to the construction of private mining hydropower plants. Literally, rivers are put in pipes and riverbeds remains dry. In the end, we were faced with a plan to use our largest pasture at Sinjavina Mountain as an international military training ground. This stunning decision was done without any real public discussion or consultation with local and academic communities, literally behind the back of its citizens. The fake public discussions behind which the decision makers are hiding were only formal political party gatherings as a group of like-minded people. The local pastoral communities of Sinjavina lived the life that many of us striving for. This zero ecological footprint and sustainable economic model proven through millennia. It is a life in the arms of, of nature. As a documentary filmmaker and activist, I have been researching this amazing place, tradition and people for years before we realized that life is bringing this terrible twist. Rumors that Sinjavina is to become a military training ground spread through the local pastoral community back in 2017. That was exactly the moment when Montenegro became a member of a NATO alliance. At that moment, a study to protect Sinjavina had already been done by Environmental Protection Agency of Montenegro. We were just waiting for the proclamation of the protected area, but it never came. Instead, information about the need to form a military training ground was shyly leaked through the state media. At that time, it was emphasized that uh, this would be a training ground for the needs of Montenegrin army, and no mention was made of the international nature of it. However, when it was announced that the training ground would occupy an area of hundreds of square kilometers, which is completely disproportionate to the Montenegrin army of around just 2,000 people in total, it was clear that there was a much bigger plan behind. The Association of Local Pastoral Communities, activists from civic movement, say Sinjavina and several others, other NGOs, began a series of protests during 2019. In the same year, a local petition was launched. And around 6,000 signatures we collected in favor of stopping the military ground in Sinjavina, while just 3,000 is the minimum necessary for the Montenegrin government to accept an issue into debate. But instead of dialogue, government had an ignorant attitude. Moreover, the protesters were publicly called enemies of the state. Faced with the completely complete arbitrariness of the government, we realized that this case must be internationalized if we want to save nature, people, tradition, and fundamental agricultural potential of our country. And in 2019, we established a contact with an international group of scientists led by here present Mr. Pablo Dominguez from Toulouse University. Despite protests and the petition, 
the government made the decision and declared the military training ground on the 5th September 2019. It was immediately followed with new protests, but only three weeks later, the troops from the United States, Austria, Slovenia, Italy, North Macedonia, and Montenegro held the first military training on Sinjavina Meadows. Half ton of explosive was dropped that day, and the International Military Training Center was officially opened in the presence of the representatives of foreign armies. In November same year, Mr. Dominguez managed to present Sinjavina case in UNESCO headquarters in Paris and in European Parliament, as well as European Commission in Brussels, explaining the millenniary old biocultural value of Sinjavina and the current social and environmental crisis. Thanks to this presentation in February 2020, we had a meeting with the Parliamentary Committee for Stabilization and Association of EU and Montenegro. And at that moment, EU delegation asked nations parliament to guarantee protection to Sinjavina lands and culture, but this was not taken into account either. In 2020, we further strengthened cooperation with international organizations. This resulted in over 100 NGOs from the country, Europe, and all around the world supporting our struggle. I would mention just some of them, such as International Land Coalition, ICCA Consortium, Common Land Networks, Land Rights Now, Oxfam, AVAS, and many others. On the 6th of October last year, the International Save Sinjavina movement launched an AVAS petition replicated after for further impact by Land Rights Now campaign. Just in a few weeks, petition was signed by almost 10,000 people. This petition is still available to be signed and we would appreciate very much if you can do it for us. It all happened just 10 days before we were forced to set up a camp for protesters in the high mountains, a camp that lasted 51 days and prevented military exercise with combat artillery shooting. But now I would like to give a floor to Mr. Milan Sekulovic, who will tell you more about our struggle last autumn. Milan, please. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Milan Sekulovic, uh, and I am, uh, like Pablo say, uh, the son of the Sinjaimina. So um, I will speak about uh, our struggle last autumn. So um, uh, taught by our experience from uh, uh, 2019, uh, when military exercise was uh, suddenly organized uh, without any adequate uh, uh, announcement, we feared that something similar uh, may be happen again. It is important to say uh, uh, that because annually uh, activity plan of, of the Ministry of Defense uh, 2020, which is public document on the, available on the government website, did not uh, contain any information of military exercise on Sinjavina. However, our fears and suspicions uh, come true when low-profile military patrols appear on the mountain uh, to tell some herders uh, that they should leave uh, the mountain before October 15. We emphasize uh, that there was not any public announcement of the pla uh, planned uh, military activities at that moment. 
only uh, punctual uh, intimidating visits uh, to lonely, lonely herders. After representatives of the herders give the statement in the media announcing the, uh, those unofficial orders given by the military patrols, uh, the Ministry of Defense uh, publicly announced the military exercise from uh, in October from uh, 19 to 23 at the market location. Only at uh, that uh, uh, occasion, it was uh, at, at least uh, at last uh, said that uh, there will uh, be a combat artillery shooting and minister invite representatives of media and NGO to apply for accreditation and attend the mortal shelling on October 22nd at noon. Uh, herders and acti activists immediately made the decision to occupy the said location at any cost. Uh, so uh, we decided the date, it was 16 October, and call all citizens of Montenegro to stand in defense, uh, uh, in defense of this unique and precious area. On October 16, three days before uh, commen commencement uh, uh, of uh, this exercise, uh, about 150 Montenegrin citizens gathered in the Margita location on Sinjavina. Uh, there were uh, cattle breeders from mountain and surrounding valleys, activists and other citizens from uh, surrounding towns, but also from all, all over Montenegro. Uh, prominent people and activists invite the people from their com communities. The result was a large group of people gathered around the fire next to one empty uh, tent, uh, like a mark for, for the protestant camp. At a truly democratic session, uh, a decision was made that the uh, protest would be healed until the all danger uh, was removed at any cost. The first uh, morning, the camp was covered by snow, but uh, no one hesitated. Thanks to the selflessness and solidarity of many people, primarily representatives of the local communities, but also other acti uh, activists and the citizens, uh, food and firewood were provided uh, one day uh, for the other. We agree uh, on a strategy in case uh, the police and army appear on the mountain. We emphasize that uh, that this was a peaceful civic uh, civil protest, and all our planned uh, planned uh, strategies and tactics were uh, peacefully and based on our knowledge of the mountain and uh, the firm uh, de determination not to leave it uh, on, the, on the mercy of irresponsible government. On the first day of the uh, of the plan planned exercise, the military didn't show up. Police patrols and the military helicopters occasionally monitored our camp from the distance, but there is no dialogue or meeting. Again, they, they ignore the will of the citizens and wait for, uh, for our fatigue, uh, uh, cold and harsh condition to drive us, uh, drive us off, uh, off the mountain. After the first week, it was clear that this uh, situation could, could last for longer probably until the establishment of the new government, but that uh, process was very slow because of a delicate political situation in the country. At the truly uh, democratic assembly, we arranged uh, the shift, uh, arranged shift of guards. People came and went from the, from the mountain as best they could. Uh, they, uh, some, however, decided to not leave camp at any time. Our uh, protest 
from the plan seven days uh, last uh, uh, was a uh, long 51 day and uh, because of uh, because of that uh, the reason for that is uh, waiting for uh, established new government during the protest a significant contribution uh, to the civ uh, civil uh, disobedience was given by the intensive usage of social networks. In this way, we were able to spread the news uh, uh, and the reports from the spot with uh, an internet connection and uh, uh, contain uh, uh, points of the, of the mountains. Uh, also, we have a great uh, media coverage. We have a, a support from some uh, civic representatives uh, uh, from a lot of, a lot of uh, journalists. And also, we have opportunity to uh, to be part of most watched TV shows uh, in the country in the first day of the protest, and uh, to confront the arguments with the with the representatives of, of army. That was first time uh, uh, we have dialogue with uh, representatives of the army. Unfortunately, uh, today uh, more than. Uh, 10, 10 months later, uh, we still have the same problem. Uh, Sinevina is still uh, a military training ground, and new Ministry of Defense, first time uh, last year, say uh, there could no be military activities on the Sinevina. But now, a uh, few months uh, uh, before, we have a, a, the announcement from the same ministry, and she say, that they still considering the possibility of, of using a part of Sinevina uh, as a military training ground. It seems uh, that we are still far uh, from the final and positive solution. That is why now, uh, more than ever, we need the support of progressive force around the world, and we need all of the help uh, necessary to prevent our territory of life to turn into a territory of the dead and destruction. So it's our request Please help us to save Sinjavin. And uh, this is it for, for me for now. And now I give the floor uh, my colleague and friend, Persida Jovanovic, and she is a daughter of the Sinjavin. Persida, floor is yours. Thank you, Anne, for the opportunity to speak here today. Um, I will say something more about the next steps for our campaign. Uh, in early December last year, the new government got in place. Uh, the new defense minister, which was from the party that is associated with the European Green Party, immediately called for the dismantling of the camp, saying the military training uh, exercises on Sinaiwina would stop, at least for the time being. Uh, so that was the end of the first phase. Uh, it was felt as a huge victory, but uh, while the minister's words show good intentions, uh, and they're very welcome. They're not yet legally binding. Uh, now, in 2021, uh, there is still no protected area that ensures that this uh, never happens again in the future. And uh, uh, different ministers, especially Minister of Environment and Defense, are still uh, denying you meeting with Sesnyavina on this topic. And there's a need for uh, international pressure uh, to make a law that will definitely cancel the current law that grants this territory status of uh, protect of uh, military training ground and there's a need to create a new one uh, that will make a protect protected area 
that is uh, co-designed and concurrent uh, with the uh, local communities that are using Smile. Uh, because if not, uh, the military can uh, go up anytime and uh, legally use the mountain as a military training ground. Uh, the new government and the new parties in the government are still uh, working with the EU to converge and they need uh, pressure to make this happen. Uh, the Minister of Defense and the Minister of the Environment are, uh, who are the most relevant for the case of Sinyaimina uh, are no longer answering our calls, uh, but before the election and uh, during the camp, uh, they were supporting us. They even came to see, up, uh, in the to see us up in the resistance camp at almost 2,000 meters of altitude to say hello and shake hands and uh, get their picture in the newspapers. But now they're not picking up the phone. So say Sinyarina and uh, its allies around the world need to make some noise now. Uh, we are preparing a big festival of Sinyarina for the month of May that will be held in the capital of the country uh, to draw attention to the case of Sinyarina. Uh, and if still nobody receives us, we will continue uh, rolling in the streets because we have enough patience. Uh, we also need to create again a great campaign and which will be mobilized with the help of all of you because some poor farmers were going to get bombed and they could not do anything about it and Sinyaimina is a jewel uh, of culture and biodiversity and it is scandalous. It is the whole world that should be scandalized not just uh, uh, a few hundred of families inhabiting it. Uh, because it is not only a Montenegro heritage, it is a world heritage that has reached to us through millennia. So please help us to make this change happen. Thank you. And once more, I want to express gratitude for this precious prize and for your recognition of uh, Safe Sinyamila efforts. Thank you. All right, what a wonderful and inspiring award ceremony. When I hear stories like these from Montenegro, one thing I think of is, what if these few people didn't have the courage to take action? What if NATO had just gone ahead and obliterated these lands? Would the world even know what was lost? So thanks to all the heroes we're honoring today. And thanks to everyone who was a part of this event. And thanks for listening to another episode of this podcast. You can find out more about all of these organizations and individuals by checking out the awards page on our website, worldbeyondwar.org, and following the links. Let's close this out the way we began, with the music of Ron Korb.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.